tonight. Mark chapter 11. Now, Bryce, do, do yourself a favor now. I tried to help Tim out, and Tim never got with me on this thing. When I say where y'all are registered, make sure you have a play in this, okay? So when I say you're registered, when we do this baby shower, when you're registered at Amazon or, you know, once upon it, whatever, let's throw in a Home Depot or something like that, okay? And uh, so be thinking about that. Gun store, something. All right. We're back in the Gospel of Mark. I'm going to do a little bit of review. We're Mark chapter 11, 22 through 26 tonight. Um, and I want to give you just a quick quick reminder that there were three lessons found in Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 26. There's three lessons. First of all, there's the lesson of the missing fruit, the lesson of a mystical fraud, and then tonight, the lesson about mountain-moving faith. Mountain moving faith. So let's just be reminded missing fruit, talking about the fig tree. Um, there was a problem. Give me a second. All right, that's not as bad as the last time. Glad I'm sitting down, y'all. <clears throat> There's a problem. I feel fine, y'all. I'm just a little dizzy. I'm good. There's a problem, there's a pronouncement, and there's a picture. All right, that's the lesson of the missing fruit. Then we got the mystical fraud. We're talking about the religious problems that they were having there. What Jesus did, um, there was displacement, there was dismantling, there was disruption. Uh, there were detours, discipling, and doctoring, okay? Now, the question is, why did Jesus do it? He did it to change attitudes, he did it to create awareness, and he did it to challenge actions, okay? It passed. I think I'm good. It passed. So, um, he also wanted to cultivate adoration, correct assumptions, and communicate affection, communicate affection. So, now, let's get into mountain-moving faith, all right? Mountain-moving faith. Mark chapter 11, verse 22. And Jesus answering saith unto them, Have faith in God. For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Therefore I say unto you, What things soever ye desire, when ye pray, believe that ye receive them, and ye shall have them. And when you stand praying, forgive, if you have aught against any, that your Father also which is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive your trespasses. Father, would you help us now as we look to this word? Uh, Lord, I'm dealing with it just a little bit of dizziness, nothing like I had on Sunday, Father, but it's enough to annoy me a little bit. I pray you'd clear that up for me, Father, and that we'd just be able to get about the business of your word. Um, I don't know of any aspect of this that would bring glory to the Lord in not being able to study your word. So help us with that, I pray. And uh, Lord, just uh, be with us and just help us to just be what we should be tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. 
All right, mountain moving faith. I'm going to begin with something that's going to seem a little bit out of place for this. I'm going to begin with a definition. The definition is the word hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the science and art of interpreting the Bible. That's the direct quote from a gentleman named Roy B. Zuck. And Roy Zuck is a great Bible teacher, and especially uh, especially good in the matter of sermon preparation and Bible interpretation. Um, in fact, I recommend if you do any teaching at all, Sunday school or otherwise, his is a great book to have um, about Bible interpretation. But hermeneutics is the science and art of interpreting the Bible, the science and art of interpreting the Bible. Now, why do I bring that up getting into this, into this passage? Well, there's a basic rule of proper interpretation, and it's this. When you interpret the Bible, do so literally according to its normal grammatical historical meaning unless there is a compelling reason to do otherwise. So unless you have a compelling reason not to interpret something in Scripture literally, do so. I'll give an example. In Revelation, you remember it talks about the demonic creatures that come up and they've got hair like a woman's hair and they've got a face like a man and they sound like chariots and they have scorpion tail. I heard preachers when I was growing up say, oh, that's John's description of helicopters. Okay. But the thing is, if we follow the basic rule of interpretation, we should take things literally unless we're given a reason not to. Is it reasonable to conclude that there are demonic creatures coming up out of the bottomless pit that look like that? Read the rest of Revelation. There's all sorts of stuff like that. So a literal interpretation would see them just like the Bible puts them and not try to modernize them and connect them with something that's going on today. Now, there are times that it is clear that you should not take it literally. Can I give an example? The similitudes of the Song of Solomon. As he's describing his love, let's just use chapter 7, verse 4. Thy neck is as a a tower of ivory, thine eyes like the fish pools of Heshbon by the gate of Beth-Rabim. Thy nose is as the tower of Lebanon, which looketh toward Damascus. Would you want to see somebody that looked like that literally? Because one person rendered it like that. That is a literal rendering of what what Solomon describes his love as. Now, I'm sure she's a wonderful person, but not my type. Okay? So there are some portions of Scripture in which it's obvious that you don't take it literally. This in particular is what's called a similitude, a simile, like or as. Okay? All right? Now, where in the world am I going with all this? This passage is a tough one for me, so much so that I put it off for a week and then we went into missions conference. I struggle with this passage, and in particular, I struggle with verse 23. For verily I say unto you, that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Now, why is this a tough one for me? Let me just give you some, just some things. I've written them down, so they're not ramblings, but just some thoughts about it. First of all, most commentators dismiss this statement in verse 23 as what's called hyperbole. 
Now, what's hyperbole? Hyperbole is an intentional exaggeration that's not meant to be taken literally, but is used to prove a point. And there is a use for hyperbole, and it was a common technique of Jewish rabbis. Many argue that the mountains here that Jesus talks about are but symbolic and representing impossible obstacles or situations that occur in a believer's life. Now, to be fair, there is a verse that equates difficult circumstances with a mountain needing to be removed. It's in Zechariah 4.7 that does exist, and that was a Jewish way of doing things. And while this may be a useful application, I just don't see it as the proper interpretation of that verse. Now remember, a verse can have many different applications, but it can only have one correct interpretation. Okay, And you could certainly use this verse in an application to say, Jesus, through our faith, will remove the mountains that are in our lives, those obstacles. We can certainly make that application. But is that what he's saying to his audience, grammatically, historically, and directly? They're excited. Here's a third reason why this passage gives me tough times. If a basic rule is to interpret a passage literally, then I would ask, where in verse 23 is anything grammatically, historically, contextually that guides me to view it symbolically? Let's read it again. Verse 23, for verily, truly, I say unto you, that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed And be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. I can imagine symbolism there, but there's nothing in the text to say it. Now, there are a lot of preachers that try to come behind their pulpits and make you think that they got it all figured out, but I'm telling you, this one I struggle with this one. And if you study your Bible at all and you never struggle, then you're not putting enough effort into it. Because there are passages in Scripture that are tough and frankly could mean more than one thing. Okay? You know what really gets me about this and why I can't see it symbolically? One word. For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, That's pretty specific, isn't it? This mountain. I don't know what mountain he means exactly, but it seems from the text that he is specifically referencing an actual mountain and not a difficult situation. Then here's another question. If this is to be taken literally, is there evidence of a mountain ever having been moved via the prayer of faith? Now, I suppose it's possible that it happened and we didn't know it happened. You know, some kind of earthquake or something happened, and so it was the result of somebody praying, and we just don't know that. But I can't point to anything historical that it's ever happened. Now, have, I, have I successfully taken a passage that didn't used to give you any problems at all and made it into one that does? Maybe. But let's dig into it. This is my conclusion that I made regarding this. 
There's nothing that I can see grammatically or historically to compel me away from a literal interpretation of what Jesus is saying. Now, there is room for the application of mountains representing insurmountable circumstances, but that is but an application. And so my only recourse is to conclude that Jesus is saying that it is possible to move a literal mountain if all the qualifiers are met. And that's the key. That's the crux of the matter. So, I guess what we could say is this is, this is the qualifiers for mountain-moving faith. The qualifiers for mountain-moving faith. Now, we understand that when you come into something like this, you've got to compare Scripture with Scripture, right? And you have to, you have to look at something from the whole scriptural spectrum. So when you're talking about answered prayers, I just picked out three just to quickly run through. Uh, answered prayers, you understand, first of all, they gotta be, they got to be prayed, right? What did James say in James 4 too? You have not because you ask not. So it assumes that a prayer has been prayed. It also assumes, according to James 4, 3, that it's been asked but not amiss, that we might consume it upon our own lusts. It also assumes, according to John 14, that it's being prayed within God's will. Obviously, God is not going to honor a prayer that is outside of his will. I mean, we understand these qualifiers exist, but when we look to this passage specifically in Mark chapter 11, when Jesus says, if you have faith, you can move that mountain, are there qualifiers within this passage? And if we meet those qualifiers, can a mountain be moved? The answer is yes. Okay? So, mountain-moving faith, according to this passage, first of all, is directed faith. It's directed faith. Look at verse 22. And Jesus answering saith unto them, Have faith where? In God. Seems pretty elementary, doesn't it? Have faith in God. But let me ask you a question that I have to ask myself. Where really, if I really look at it, where is my faith directed? Hmm? If I preach a message that I believe God laid on my heart, and it doesn't have the impact outwardly that I thought it should, and so I go home in the mully grubs thinking that I didn't do a very good job, where was my faith directed? And myself. It's real easy to think that your faith is in God when really it's in you. It seems like lately, and I say lately, like the last five years or so, without fail, the question that I get dealt, I deal with the most more than anything is assurance of salvation. A lot of people are struggling with that. And I suppose God's let me have my own struggles with that over the years so that I can maybe be a little more empathetic to people that are struggling with that. And fundamentally, here's what it comes down to. A lot of times, assurance of salvation is a matter of your faith being very much toward yourself as opposed to God. It's all about, did I do this? Did I do this? Did I do this? No, you're saved because of what he did. See, have faith in God. Where's your faith directed? 
And too many people, whether they realize it or not, whether they mean to or not, they direct their faith in their ability or in their level of faith. By the way, it is possible to put your faith in faith. I have a lot of faith. I have strong faith. Then what you've done is you've put your faith in faith instead of your faith in God. Our faith must be solely directed in God plus nothing. Nothing. So if you're going to move a mountain, literally, first of all, there has to be a directed faith. And that faith must be solely directed in God, not in what we want, not in what we think we can do, not in where we think we ought to be or how far along we think we should be. Our faith must be in God. The Family Life Center isn't going to be built if my faith rests in how well I can fundraise or if my faith rests in, in, in how well I can motivate people to give or my faith rests in how, how good ideas I get to, you know, to get things going or that kind of thing. Ultimately, if that thing's going to be built, my faith's got to be in God. Well, my faith's in the economy. Well, good luck with that. Isn't it interesting? We tend to put our faith everywhere but in the only one who doesn't change. That's to be a directed faith. Now, verse 23. It has to be a doubtless faith. This word gets a lot of people. Verse 23. He says, "How faith in, have faith in God... For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Now I'm going to tell you, I thought I had verse 23 figured out, and I was excited. I dug into the Greek, and I thought, what if, what if, the antecedents are different than what I think they are. You say, what in the world are you talking about? What if he doesn't mean he? Okay, so let's use, let's use God and man instead of these he's, okay? For verily I say unto you that whatsoever man shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, this man's heart, but shall believe that those things which the man saith, I'm sorry, but shall believe that those things which God saith shall come to pass, that man shall have whatsoever God saith. Boy, that's good theology right there, isn't it? And so I dug. If this is what it's saying, then this verse is sewed right up for me. I'm good to go. And I couldn't get any clarity on it. So I called my Greek professor in college. And I said, could this be what it means? And he said, no. It does not bear that out in the Greek. It is 100% talking about that man who's exercising faith. And I'm like, well, thanks for nothing. Don't you hate it when your theology doesn't match up with the Bible? Now, now. Most of you aren't preachers, but anybody that has preached or taught, boy, you get excited about a point, and then you, 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 you find out it won't preach. You sure wish it would, though, but it won't. I really wanted that to preach, but it won't. So I'm right back to square one again. 
right back to not understanding this verse. The key word in this verse, I think of the whole verse, is the word doubt. Now here's what doubt means. It literally means to separate thoroughly. And in this particular context, when someone is doubting, what exactly are they separating? And here's what they're separating. They're separating God from his attributes. What in the world do you mean, Andy? To doubt here when Jesus says, and shall not doubt in his heart, what he's saying is, to cast uncertainty on who God is and what he can and will do. Can you separate God from who he is and what he does? No. And yet, when we doubt, fundamentally, what are we doubting? We're doubting God. We're doubting God. And when we doubt God, we are separating him. We are separating our concept from, of God from who he really is and what he really does. For instance, let me give you an example. Don't raise your hand because I already know the answer. Has there ever been a time in your life that you even just for a fleeting moment entertained the idea that God doesn't love you? But wait a minute, what's the Bible say? God is love. So when we doubt that, what are we actually doing? We're separating God from who he is, right? You see where we're going with this? And so what Jesus is saying is, when you doubt, you're not doubting you. You're doubting me. You're doubting my father. And if that doubt exists in your life, you will never have the faith that's needed to move a mountain. It's also interesting to note this. He doesn't just say doubt. He says doubt's in his heart. And what do we know from Proverbs 23? That as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So it means you've allowed your life to be identified by doubt. It's who you are. You're a doubter. It's rooted in who we are and not just what we allow. So doubt here is directed at the person of God, a grievous error. So if you want to move a mountain, you have to have a faith that's directed. You have to have a faith that is doubtless. Number three, it needs to be a delighting faith. Verse 24. Therefore I say unto you, what things soever ye desire, when ye pray, believe that ye receive them, and ye shall have them. Oh, well, I can desire a lot. I can desire this car, this house, this boat, this location. I can desire this position in life. I can desire a lot. But remember, we're comparing Scripture with Scripture, right? Where should your desires come from? Do you remember Psalm 37, 4? Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. 
Now let's, re- let's review that verse. I know most of us have heard that before. What does it mean to delight yourself in the Lord? I love Hebrew. I loved Hebrew in college. I loved Hebrew way more than I liked Greek. Hebrew just appealed to me. I don't know if there's something up with me. Hebrew goes from right to left, and it's it, and, and I just I read it just fine. Um, Greek is much more precise. Hebrew is very picturesque. In fact, there's only about 250 root words in biblical Hebrew, and everything else is determined by prefixes, suffixes, and context. Everybody's better for knowing that, right? Well, the word for delight, the picture, is of a reed blowing in the wind. You say, a reed, what's a reed? A reed would be, I guess around here, the closest thing would be a cattail in, in the marsh, just blowing with the wind. What's, what's pictured by wind in Scripture? Holy Spirit, right? So what does it mean to delight yourself in the Lord? It means, here I am, Lord, and whatever way your spirit blows, I'm just going to go along with it. Delighting in God is just whatever you want me to do, Lord. Well, if it satisfies you, it satisfies me. I'm just completely pliable to your will. Now, if, they, if we do that, he says, he'll give us the desires of our heart. Now, English is important, y'all. It does not say he will give us the fruit of our desires. Right? It says he'll give us the desires. You see, as I sit right here, I have all kinds of desires. But does that mean I have the fruit of my desires? I may sit here before you desiring a new truck. But do I have a new truck? I do not. He doesn't say he'll give us the fruit of our desires. He says he'll give us our desires. So if you're delighting in the Lord, if you're pliable to his will, he's going to tell you what you should want. He's going to give you a desire for what you should want. And so with that in mind, go back to that verse and look at it again. Therefore, I say unto you, that what things soever ye desire, where those desires come from? God. If you have desires that have come from God, when you pray, believe that you shall receive them and you shall have them. Now that lines up with the full totality of biblical theology when it comes to prayer. If you're praying for something God wants you to have, you know, a delighting faith. If we're delighting in God, our desires will be indicative of what he wants, not what we want. Okay? Now, if you want to move mountains, your faith has to be directed. It has to be doubtless. It has to be delighting. And then fourthly, it's got to be decontaminated. Decontaminated. Verse 25. And when you stand praying, forgive. If you have ought against any. By the way, notice it doesn't say forgive them if they ask for it. He just says forgive. So if, you know, if Brother Josh back there has offended me and makes no effort to make it right, that doesn't mean a thing. I'm to forgive him. I'm to forgive him. When you stand praying, forgive if you have ought against any, that your Father also, which is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. 
But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father, which is in heaven, forgive your trespasses. Now, it's, I must hasten to say this. We're not talking about forgiveness as it relates to salvation. This is not talking about salvation. Well, if I don't forgive everybody that's ever hurt me, I can't be saved. That is not what this is saying. This is talking about forgiveness within salvation. It's, it's not talking about your position. It's talking about the practical side of things. It's talking about keeping things clean with the God you already serve. Okay? If we aren't forgiving people... And God's not forgiving us our trespasses, then what's in our lives? Sin, right? If I haven't gotten it practically taken care of via 1 John 1 9, then I've got sin in my life, right? And what do we know about sin as it relates to prayer? Psalm 66 18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me if i'm asking god to move a mountain in faith does that mean that he needs to hear me but my faith has been contaminated by sin that i haven't gotten taken care of all right so let's sew this all up if i want mountain moving faith it's directed it's doubtless it's delighting it's decontaminated so, Andy, when, when Jesus said, if you have faith, you can move mountains, he, he certainly meant that symbolically. I can't see it. Maybe he did, but I don't see it. Now, you can make that application, absolutely. But it's not there. And I've heard some people say, well, I think it's just indicative that we have not even begun to scratch the surface of faith, and they reference the faith as a grain of a mustard seed. That's not in this passage. The faith is a grain of mustard seed. It's a whole different passage, a whole different occasion. It's true. We haven't scratched the surface of faith. But that's not here either. I believe Jesus meant what he said. I can't see it any other way. I don't think that he was trying to use hyperbole. I'll tell you, hyperbole in and of itself is not a lie, but they are close cousins. I believe Jesus meant what he said. And I believe if the criteria were met, that mountains could indeed be moved. That being said, I see no evidence that any human has ever attained such pure levels of directed, doubtless, delighting, and decontaminated faith. But let's say they did. Let's, let's take Miss Bobby here. Let's say Miss Bobby in her time as a Christian, her faith has developed to the point that it is absolutely directed, it is absolutely doubtless, it is absolutely delighting, and it is absolutely decontaminated. You, you know what we'd find with Miss Bobby? She gets to that level. She's still not going to command a mountain to move unless God tells her to. So she could if God tells her to. 
But if he doesn't tell her to, she's not. So I guess what I come away from this with is this. We're not going to get there, y'all. Not this side of heaven. But boy, it's a good mark to shoot for, isn't it? It's just like perfection. John Wesley, for all due respect to John Wesley, he believed you could attain sinless perfection. He never did, but he believed it could be done. Not this side of heaven, it can't. But it's not a bad goal, is it? I want to be the perfect husband. I'm not, and I'm not going to be. That's a good goal. I want to be the perfect pastor. I'm not. I never will be. It's a good goal. And I want to have a faith that literally can move mountains. I'm not there. But it's a good goal.